morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Hey, great to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, again, just, just really grateful to worship Jesus alongside of you uh, this morning. If you're a guest, uh, maybe it's your first time here, I want to say a very special welcome to you this morning. Uh, guests, one thing that we would ask of you, we try not to ask too much, but one thing we would ask, if you would take a second uh, at some point before you leave, there's some QR codes in front of you. Uh, scan that. It'll direct you to lpguest.com. There's a guest information card. We'd love to have you fill that out so we can connect with you. Uh, we'd also love to have you fill that out so we can donate five bucks to one of our partner ministries. And so we'll do that in your honor. Uh, we just need that guest card. So thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, so today, a uh, special day well, coming off of yesterday, so Veterans Day. And I, I, there are a lot among our uh, body here who have served uh, in our armed forces. And so this morning, I want to take a, a moment um, so if you have uh, served, whether actively or in the past, would you stand uh, this morning? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, we say, I say, I feel like maybe sometimes too often, we don't necessarily live in a, a Christian country, and yet we live in a country that we are free to be Christian. And that is uh, in large part due to your sacrifice, um, to your willingness uh, to fight for that. And so uh, veterans, um, active members, uh, I know we just had somebody come back off of a year deployment. We've got somebody, uh, Jose is going on a year soon. Somebody, I mean, there's just, there's of our church family, a lot of folks who serve. So thank you uh, for how it is you serve. I also want to take a moment um, just to uh, acknowledge and say thank you for your generosity last week. And so two weeks ago, I introduced this thing. Grace Clinic, it's one of our ministry partners here in Marion. They said, hey, we need some help with food uh, for our patients. Grace Clinic gives free health care, essentially, to those who need it in our community, and they share the gospel while they do it. We want to be a part of that. That's amazing. They said, hey, we need some food. Uh, LifePoint, can you help us? And y'all responded in an incredible way. Um, I was able to, on Monday, deliver 31 food bags. I know we've had several more come in either this morning or throughout the week. Um, I've coordinated with their director. They're going to get those tomorrow to give those away. She sent me an email on Tuesday. The director, her name is Kay Melching, and she said this, I want you to know we gave away 11 Thanksgiving bags last night. That was Monday, like an hour after I dropped them off, um, which exceeded my expectations. Two were to families that had just crossed the border from Mexico to the United States, uh, and another to a homeless person who was able to go to his sister's house to cook occasionally. LifePoint Church has blessed our patients. I am grateful for your support and your continued prayers. And so, church, uh, thank you for your generosity. Um, it's really good. Thank you for your response there uh, in generosity. And again, we've got some more of those bags. We're going we're to get those uh, to Grace Clinic. Uh, this morning, uh, we're continuing on in a series. We're in week three now. The series title is, is Exiles. And the reason for that series title is we're looking at the life of exile of four guys, uh, Daniel and his three friends, and I forget their Hebrew names right now, which I feel really, really bad about, uh, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and they um, are in exile in Babylon after the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has come in and, and wiped out things, brought these, these four and, and many others, these are just four among thousands likely, uh, into Babylon to try and retrain them to reprogram them, to take sort of the Hebrew out of them, the God-fearing out of them, and to make them into Babylonians. But what we see consistently is that it doesn't matter where they live, they're still going to be faithful to God. 
That's the main point of this series, that faith is more about how you live than where you live. And we need to take that seriously today uh, as we live in a world and a time where we need to understand, hey, it's not about necessarily where I live, but it's, but it's who do I serve? What God am I loyal to? What God am I giving my allegiance to? And so this morning, we're going to be in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. So if you have your scriptures with you, that's great. I will also have the text for you on the, on the screens. I'm going to pray for us because we always need the Lord's help. And uh, then we're going to get into the text, okay? Father, uh, we trust you this morning. And uh, we ask you, as we open your word, you, you promise God elsewhere in your word that your word is living and it's active, and then it can change us and, and shape us. And so, God, we cling to that promise this morning, that your word would change us, change us, it would pierce us, it would lead us to repentance and faith so that you would be glorified and we would see that is good for us. Get me out of the way. Help me communicate your word clearly. Again, I, I want your glory, your honor, your praise this morning. We need that, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the text says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, so we just jumped right in here. It's like, okay, he makes this image of gold. It's, it's 60 cubits tall, and I know you're familiar with ancient measurements, but just in case you're not, 60 cubits tall is about 90 feet. This thing is 90 feet tall, and it's, it's six cubits in width, and so it's like nine feet wide. It's a massive thing, and he sets this thing up. And so uh, I think it's, it's helpful to know what time we're in, in the timeline of the book of Daniel. Okay, so I think this is pretty clearly, not only is it placed in chapter 3, which is after the events of chapter 2, you're welcome for that bit of analysis there, um, but what happens here is sometimes in scriptures, like timelines are a little bit mixed up, but I do think it is very clear that Nebuchadnezzar setting up this giant image um, is after the events of chapter 2, and you might ask, well, how do you know that? And I love that you lean in and ask good questions, especially uh, so early on in the message. Uh, back in chapter 2, in verses 37 through 38, we see this, and, and um, Ryan did such a good job walking us through chapter 2 last week. And, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in chapter 2, and he commands that his dream would be told back to him and then interpreted. And everybody's like, man, nobody can do that except God. And Daniel's like, hey, I know God. Here you go. Um, and so this is what uh, happens after Daniel explains what his dream is and then the interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And so in this, this dream Nebuchadnezzar had, he sees this massive figure. And this massive figure has a head of gold, and the rest of its body is made of different types of gold, different uh, metals, silver, different things like that. Its feet are made of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, what is this image? And what is this head of gold? And Daniel says, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And that head of gold represents your mighty empire and your mighty power. And so then when we turn to chapter 3, after Nebuchadnezzar's been like, yeah, I am the head of gold, what we see him do is build this ridiculous head of gold. You see, then you might ask, well, what is an image? And again, I love that you ask good questions. You lean in. And so an image we can think of, and I think we probably get the idea, an image is essentially a figurine in a sort, or a little statue. I'm going to give you a, a picture, 
of an image here. Um, and just so you, I'm, like, this is an image of Baal. False god Baal in the ancient world, this little figurine would be worshipped. I know we hear that and we're like, that's ridiculous. But that's what would happen. And so again, Nebuchadnezzar's image is not so small, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. And what Nebuchadnezzar's doing, and he's setting this up, and then he's having a dedication to this image. Again, this image is this thing that represents a divine being, a god, lowercase g. And the point of this image, the point of this statue, the point of this figurine is to point toward worship of that divine, quote-unquote, lowercase g, God. Now, here's what happens next. Turn to verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so essentially there's an all call, if you will, to anyone in Babylon who has a position of leadership, a position of authority. Of authority. And this is dedication to say, hey, from here on out, here's how this is going to go. And again, I think connected back to chapter 2. He's really leaning into his power. Verse 3. Then the satraps, uh, the, excuse me, verse 4. Uh, and the herald, so they, they all gather, and there's a herald. A herald is somebody who proclaims sort of news or a command of the king in this instance. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, I love that they had bagpipes, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, uh, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of musical uh, music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is pretty extreme. When you hear music of any kind, you worship the golden image. And I think that, again, is crazy, but it's very on-brand, if you will, uh, for this time. And what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here is he's establishing himself in that golden head that was a dream from God, and he's saying, no, this is me. You will now worship me. Now, skip down to verse 12. What happens is they play the music. People worship, except for a few. Verse 12, there are certain Jews what happens is certain leaders of Babylon, they see that, wait a minute, not everybody is bowing down and worshiping these, this image, and they go to Nebuchadnezzar to, to rat these three out. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve, you, uh, serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before, king, before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Come here. 
I'm going to scold you. I'm going to give you a chance. And it sort of speaks to the value that these three had in the kingdom of Babylon that he even gives them a chance. Like, this is not a dude to be trifled with. But he gives them a chance. Say, hey, look, I'm going to give you one more opportunity. When you hear the music, bow down. Got it? Okay, good. Here's how they respond. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. What faith. I mean, incredible faith. These guys would have known, again, that Nebuchadnezzar is not a, a dude to be trifled with. They would have seen him come into Jerusalem and do horrific things to people, to destroy people, to show zero mercy. They knew that if the king commanded this, it wasn't a bluff. And yet their faith is stronger than their circumstances. And they say, no, no matter what, we're not bowing down. Even if you spare our life today, we're not going to bow down. Because why? We have a God who is able to deliver us. And so they don't bow down. Jump over to verse 23. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar has them bound. He has guards take them to this furnace. Okay, uh, And, and we, we see what happens here. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, the governors, and the kings, and the counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve, the worship, serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb, shall be torn limb to, from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, and there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. It's a classic dis dictator response, isn't it? He's so extreme. Now if you disobey this God, you're gonna, I'm going to destroy you. What an incredible story. A couple verses we skipped, what we see is Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace heated seven times hotter, which is clearly he wasn't thinking straight. <laughs> if he really hated them, he would have made it not as hot. He says, no, I'm going to make this undeniably hot. I'm going to throw them in. And what happens is God is faithful to deliver these three. Some would say this is a pre-incarnate figure of Jesus walking with them in the fire, and that may well very be. Some would say it's an angel. The point doesn't necessarily matter. The point is God heard their prayer. He responded to them. He rescued them, and their faith prevailed. And I'll be honest with you, as I was, as I was working through this text this morning, I felt like I had two or three different messages. <laughs> because I think the obvious sort of thing is to focus in on this moment and look at the faith of these three, and there is much to learn in the faith of these three. And so I do want to talk about that, but I really want to get to, 
do another thing a little bit. But, but first, I want to address, I think, some really important points that we see. Number one, commitment to God must outweigh preservation of self. We, got, we have to see that. Commitment to God has to outweigh preservation of self. You know, we don't likely um, have the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace, praise the Lord, uh, at least not here on this earth. Um, and so what we, what we need to think about is, are there moments, are there times, are there seasons in which I am tempted to reject God in order to preserve my image with other people? Am I tempted to reject God and my following and my faith of him in order to save my, my reputation, whatever that means? Am I, am I willing to reject my, my values that are faith-driven so that I can get this other opportunity? Is your primary goal me, what's best for me in this circumstantial moment, or is your primary goal, no, faith in who God is? And that should change how we navigate the world. It should change our business dealings. It should change how we're talking with our friends. If somebody's mocking God, we shouldn't mock God along with them. We should say, no, I, I believe in the, the truth that Jesus walked out of the grave, and that is undeniable. Right? That should shape us and change us. Second, God never promised us no trials, but God did promise that he would be with us in the midst of the trial. I think sometimes in American Christianity, we get this idea in our head that says, hey, I'm living right. Have you ever used that phrase? I'm living right. You know, things must be going really well. I'm doing, doing the right things. And we sort of get it into our head that if we do all of the right things, whatever that means, God then owes us an easy trial-free life. That is false. That is not in the scriptures. In fact, the very opposite is in the scriptures. God never promises us easy, but he does promise to be with us. The Gospel of Matthew at the end, before Jesus ascends into, into heaven, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Here's why this is so important. If we say, oh, I believe in Jesus, now my life's going to be awesome, and we go waltzing into the world like we do, I don't know, it's a weird image, but we just go into the world and we're like, yeah, things are going to be great, I now have faith in Jesus, and then something hard happens, if your theology says, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be, what's going to happen is you're going to reject God. But if you realize, no, the pattern of this world is for difficult things to happen, suddenly you realize, oh, this is how it's supposed to be, and rather this is now an opportunity for God to shape me and grow me and for me to trust and rely on him in this moment. Those are two different worlds of navigating our faith, are they not? If you look at the life of the apostles... I mean, just brutal. Trial after trial after trial. The Apostle Peter says we should consider it pure joy when we experience trials of various kinds. That's so backwards. But yet, that's what the Bible teaches. Is that how we live? Is that how we think? In a hardship is our first response, how dare you, God, or God help me? Number three, trials do not serve as punishments from God, but rather opportunities for us to serve and glorify God. Again, this is another sort of thing like, oh, I must have, I must have slipped up, so God is punishing me in this divine thing. I think we've got to be careful with that. God allows us to be disciplined, but I think discipline is different than wrathful, vengeant God smoting you, smiting you, right? Oh, when it, you know, it's different than 
than God saying, no, you did this wrong thing. I'm going to destroy you. No, God allows us to go through hard things so that we'll be conformed to his image, so that we will be reshaped and remolded. And I think, again, if we go back into the context of this passage, was the point Shadrach and Meshach's glory? No. They were merely the characters in the story. The point was that God is king over death. God is Lord over death. Nebuchadnezzar has no ultimate power. And the point was to show this earthly king who the true king was. And so that should again shape and mold how it is we think. How it is we think about the trials that we experience. What is a trial you're going through right now? Can you name one? And then how can you think about God? Help me glorify you in the midst of this trial. You are with me. You need to preach that to yourself and help me glorify you in the midst of the trial. I think we could deep dive into those three points, and I think they're very relevant and from the text. But again, as I was thinking and processing through this text, there's something that really, really struck me as fascinating, frankly. And whenever that happens, I just want to dig a little bit lower and say, what's going on here? Don't you guys think it's fascinating? If you, if you recall, again, back in chapter 2, um, We see Nebuchadnezzar do something really interesting. After Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar has this response, and it's very similar to the response he has in chapter 3. Verse 47 of chapter 2, it says this, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of the mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Isn't it fascinating that this king in the past... He believed in God. Isn't that crazy? Like, Nebuchadnezzar had this moment where he believed, and I think that's so fascinating. Like, he acknowledges God is God. He attributes lordship properties to God to say he is God over all gods. Like, this is God. And then you turn to chapter 3, and what do you see Nebuchadnezzar doing? Setting up a ridiculous image of himself to be worshipped. And you say, how can you possibly believe in the one true God and then set up this false idol to be worshipped? Do you see the contradiction in the paradox, in the, 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 the challenge there? Nebuchadnezzar believed in God and continued to worship false gods and promote and demand and command the worship of false gods. And again, I think we can read that and be like, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Of course we would never do a thing like that. Acknowledge that God is God and then continue to worship a false God, a false idol. It might sound ridiculous, but I think we need to to remember that maybe it's not quite as ridiculous as it might sound. Again, Ryan made a great point last week. When Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, he, he went to the people he should have gone to to interpret the dream. He went to the sorcerers, the enchanters, all these people, because that's the people they were, that he was supposed to go to. The same is true as Nebuchadnezzar establishes this image of himself, this false god. Nebuchadnezzar is doing essentially exactly what he's supposed to do in his culture. See, Nebuchadnezzar lived at a time when the idea of a god was these multiple quote-unquote deities, that what you had to do was you had to control these deities to get you what you wanted. And you would sacrifice, make certain sacrifices to these certain lowercase g false gods. And if you did things in the right way, they then owed you and they could get you what you want. And so Nebuchadnezzar, what he's doing is before his people, he is establishing himself as a deity that they worship. And then he will provide them protection and finances and all the things they need. That's the culture in which they lived. And I think that then begs a couple of questions. Okay, well, what is, what is wrong with that? 
Is that bad? Of course we know, yeah, it's bad. What, why? Really what this passage is about in so many ways is something called idolatry. You see, idolatry is the worship of anything or anyone other than God. That's what idolatry is. And consistently throughout the scriptures, God over and over and over again condemns idolatry. But that's what this is. And then you might ask, okay, well, how is this idolatry if he sets up this thing of an image? And I think we have to understand a little bit more about what, what idolatry is. And so if you go back into the book of, of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, and it's just after Israel has, has left Egypt, and they get to Mount Sinai, and in this moment, God is, is sort of defining the relationship, right? Like, hey, this is how this is going to work. And this is what God says. He lays down these Ten Commandments. Verse 3 of chapter 20, book of Exodus, he says, You shall have no other gods before me, which just really means in my presence. It doesn't mean you can have some gods, but as long as I'm the, the king on the hierarchy. No, before means in my presence in any way. Verse 4, You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And so God says very clearly, Make no other image of a thing and worship that thing. Don't do it. If you fast forward then into a uh, New, text, New Testament uh, context, right? The, in the book of Colossians, verse 5, chapter 3, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so the wrath of God would come against idolatry in the Old Testament. And according to the Apostle Paul, the wrath of God is going to come against idolatry in the New Testament. Idolatry is a really, really big deal. Now, a natural response might be to say, well, Paul, I'm not really, I'm not really worshiping an image. That little ridiculous figurine you showed up on the screen, I'm not bowing down to that thing. God said, hey, you, you could quote you know, and, and reference or cite Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 to me and say, well, I'm not making a carved or graven image and worshiping that thing. But here's the thing. Idolatry is not simply bowing down to physical idols. Idolatry actually has much more to do with what is in the heart. You understand that? Idolatry is much more to do with what is in the heart, especially in our current present day context. And I want to prove that to you because that's a, that's a difficult statement to make. If you go into the book of Ezekiel, chapter 23, what you'll see is throughout the book of Ezekiel, uh, much of the book of Ezekiel is God punishing it and saying, hey, you're guilty of idolatry. And there's this one particular passage where, where God uh, says, hey, you're guilty of idolatry. You need to repent of your idolatry. But in this particular passage, nobody's falling down and worshiping an idol. And God says in, in chapter 14, verse 3 of the book of Ezekiel, he says, you have made idols in your heart. How have they done that? When this context, what Israel had done is they'd gone to Egypt and they said, we need to make a treaty with you so that you'll protect us. That was a lot of information. Stick with me. But I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make this treaty with Egypt. They're going to protect us. And what God does, he sees that. He says, you've made an idol of safety and you've trusted this other foreign land to protect you because your priority is not worship of me. Your priority is survival. That is idolatry of the heart. If you fast forward into the New Testament, you see Jesus saying, look, you can't serve God and money. You can't do both. And so now as we sort of step back and we look at Nebuchadnezzar, who acknowledged God, said, this is God. 
And then we turn the page and we see him establishing a false God for people to worship and we say, how could you? I think, church, it's really easy for us to accept Jesus and worship idols. Nebuchadnezzar accepted God and worshiped idols. And church, my fear for us is that we accept Christ and worship idols. Because an idol is not simply a physical thing. You see, our hearts are factories of idols. An idol is anything that we love more than God. An idol is anyone that we love more than God. Even family. That's a hard, difficult truth. And the Bible says that the wrath of God is coming against idolatry. And so we need to address this, I believe, in our lives. See, the problem with idolatry, why is it so bad, is, is what idolatry is doing is saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the thing that you've created more than I'm going to trust you. Idolatry is saying, I know my purpose when you made me was to be an image bearer of you to all of creation so that all of creation would know you and worship you. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to worship your creation and point all of creation to your creation. And God's saying, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is my glory and your good. Neither of those things are happening in the form of idolatry. And so then, church, I have to ask us the question, do we have idols in our lives? And to answer that question, we're going to go through three steps. We need to recognize idols in our lives. We need to reject those idols in our lives. And then we need to replace the idols in our lives. And so step one is recognizing idols in our lives. How do we go about doing that? Well, I think we have oftentimes idols of aspiration. Again, in this framework of how, can I, how do I even know if I'm, if I'm not worshiping this thing, how do I know if I have an idol of my heart? Idols of aspiration are the things that you desire to give you meaning, significance, and oftentimes love. If you want to identify an idol of aspiration in your life, I would ask you, what do you spend the most time daydreaming about? What do you spend the most time imagining? Oh, if, if that could only happen, if they would just, if this could only The danger here, church, is that that's what we're going for, and that you can do this in a good way, and you can do this in an idolatrous way. But again, I want us to ask the question, what do I spend the most time dreaming about, hoping for, scheming for, in a way? Is that an idol in my life that I love more than God? And if I never got that thing, would I still love God? Would I resent him? If that's the case, you have an idol of aspiration. Secondly, We have idols of salvation. Idols of salvation are things in our lives that we go to and we we look toward to give us security and control and comfort. Idols of salvation oftentimes look like work. Idols of salvation oftentimes look like possessions. Idols of salvation oftentimes look like being able to provide for ourselves in every way we need. Because when we can provide for ourselves in every way we need, guess who we don't have to trust? God. I've got it, God. I've got my house. I've got my family. I've got my money. I'm good. I got the American dream. I'm good. I don't need you. Idols of salvation say, I'm good on my own. Do you have any idols 
of salvation. Secondly, and I couldn't end this one in ION, which made me annoyed, but idols of control. Idols of control. There are certain things in your life that make you snap. You're good, you're good. One thing happens and you turn into a rage monster. There are certain things in your life that you feel like it has to be this way and if it's not, I am not happy and everyone knows it. There's an idol in your life, just a heads up. What is it that makes you the most angry? What is it that you lay awake stressing about at night? What is it that fills you with the most anxiety? If you trace that back, you will find an idol in your life. This is hard. I I get that. Lastly, what good and right things do you sacrifice in order to serve the idol in your life? Again, in this mode of identifying idols in our life. So here's the thing. If we have an idol in our life of financial prosperity, we're willing to sacrifice our family to get it. If we have an idol of being significant and important at work, we're willing to say, I'm busy. I don't have time right now. There's so many things that we want to love more than God. We sacrifice often in our culture the idol, excuse me, we sacrifice the gift, excuse me, of our marriages for the idol of pornography. We want it so bad that we're willing to sacrifice the person that God has knit us together with to have it. Do you see how that works? We want our kids to excel so much that we're, we're willing to sacrifice a good relationship with them because we just beat them into submission of excelling in whatever thing so that we end up looking good. See, that's an idol of image. Again, I could just, I could just beat us over the head. I don't, my goal is not to just smack you across the face. I mean, a little bit, but in a loving way. What are the idols in your life? To, to recognize them. Second, we need to reject them. How do we go about doing that? Well, to reject an idol, we need to ask God to, to reveal to us the insufficiency of the idols we worship. See, we have a thing in us that like, well, this thing works. We're, we're fixers, aren't we? Well, this works. This makes me feel happy. This makes me feel good. I'm just going to keep running with this thing. And what we don't realize is it's killing us. It's absolutely killing us. I go to the sweets example all the time. I love candy. It's dangerous that we have so much candy in the building after Trunktober. Like, it's bad. You know, I'm here in the week. I'm like, oh, there's some Skittles. You know, like, but here's the thing. I could keep eating this thing. Like, this makes me feel good. This makes me feel good. But eventually, I'm going to, like, die of diabetes or something, right? It's going to happen. So we have to identify, how is this, how is God better than this thing? How is God more satisfying, more loving, more gracious, more good than this thing I desire in the moment? And what will happen is if we have a right appreciation of who God is, we'll begin to to root up the idols in our lives. If you have an idol of control and you recognize, no, wait, Jesus is in control of the universe, suddenly his control outweighs your desire for control. Do you see what I mean here? But here's, we have to be careful here because we can't root up all of these things like a garden and then plant nothing back in. I'm not a soil expert, but I think I know at least if you were to go to this wonderful field and have this nutrient-rich soil and you were to rip everything out of that soil and put nothing back in, what would happen when it rains is all of that good stuff would get washed away. And so we needed to plant good things back in. And so when it comes to then replacing idols in our lives, we need to ask God to reveal to us the sufficiency of Jesus. 
First, it's asking God to reveal to us the insufficiency of the idols, and then it's asking God to reveal to us the sufficiency of Jesus to satisfy our souls in only the way he can. And I think we literally need to ask, like, Jesus, help me see that you are sufficient for me. Help me see that you are sufficient to reject these idols in my life that I cling to desperately and help me trust that you've got me. Help me not only trust that you've got me, but that your plan, Jesus, is better than my plan. Help me trust, Jesus, that the satisfaction that you give me is better than the satisfaction that pornography gives me. Help me, Jesus, understand that the money and the power and the prestige of, of working in my way, away my life, help me understand, Jesus, that, that the family that you've given me and you're the Lord of our family is better than all of those things. We've got to do it. Or else we'll find ourselves accepting Jesus just like Nebuchadnezzar, and worshiping false gods simultaneously. And we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that. And so church, as we close this morning, I just want just wanted to lead us into a time, like we should be a people of repentance. This should just mark who we are. It shouldn't be a weird thing, but to, to just be a people to say, yeah, I've got issues. <laughs> There's a song, I've got issues, I've got them too. And we, we need to just have a time of repentance to say, God, help me identify these things that I'm clinging so desperately to. So Brad's going to come up. Katie's going to come up. They're going to lead us in another song. And in, that mo- in this song, you can stand and sing to Jesus, whatever you want to do. But I, I just want to, to lead us in a time of repentance. Well, the Next Steps team back there can pray for you to say, God, help this person flee from idolatry and cling to you, Jesus. So let's, let's pray together, church. And then we'll go into that time of response. Lord, we need you this morning. We trust you this morning. God, I know this is, it's uncomfortable to be confronted. It's uncomfortable to, to be recognized in the wrong. But yet it's so good because Jesus, you don't see us and condemn us. You see us and say, come here, child. <laughs> Take my Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. Come to me. Jesus doesn't condemn us. The truth is we're already condemned. He saves us. And he gives us new hearts. He gives us new values. He gives us new aspirations. So God, I ask this morning that you would give our, you would make our aspirations toward you, your glory, that you would supernaturally, by the power of your spirit, make us satisfied with you, that you would be most glorified in us, and we would see that is good. Make us a repenting people this morning, but a faith-filled people for the praise of your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.